Jerusalem Talks MD, a series of conversations organized and recorded by the University of Notre Dame with the purpose of amplifying the unique encounters that are made possible through the initiatives and presence of the university in Jerusalem and the region at large. For more information, please visit www.jerusalem.nd.edu. Hello, everyone. My name is Daniel Schwake, and I'm the executive director of the University of Notre Dame at Tantour, the campus that houses both the Ecumenical Institute for Theological Studies and one of the global gateways of the University of Notre Dame. On behalf of the team, I would like to welcome you all to the first episode of Jerusalem Talks ND, a series of conversations organized and recorded by the Gateway with the purpose of amplifying the unique encounters that are made possible through our various initiatives. We all aspire to make our campus an intellectual and spiritual oasis, note, not an island, not a bubble, but an integral part of Jerusalem and the surrounding landscape, and still be a safe space of encounter for all those that care for the greater good, irrespective of how different their opinions are. A place that embraces the multitudes of identities, narratives, experiences, and standpoints. It is also a space at which scholars are encouraged to wrestle with the most controversial of topics, assuming that there is a real thing called human reason, a notion that allows human beings not only to converse, but also, through factual and logical arguments, to convince and be convinced, and thus refute old ideas and offer new ones in the pursuit of the greater good. In our first episode of Jerusalem Talks in D, we have the pleasure of hosting and listening to a dialogue between two intellectuals that are able to listen and are capable to speak and convince based on arguments and facts. Avraham of Rumburg is best known for his career in Israeli politics and activism. He was a member of the Knesset, chairman of the Jewish Agency for Israel, and speaker of the Knesset. Avraham is the author of many books and articles, and we are proud that he serves as an adjunct faculty member at Notre Dame's Gateway in Jerusalem. Father David Neuhaus is a Jesuit priest, scholar, and professor of theology. He was superior of the Jesuit community for, of the House of the Pontifical Biblical Institute in Jerusalem. Previously, he assumed the office of Patriarchal Vicar for Hebrew-speaking Catholics in the Latin Patriarchate of Jerusalem. Father David has been a regular instructor at the various programs of the Ecumenical Institute and a great friend of Tantor. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, you all. My father, my brother, Shalom David. Hi, Avram. How many years you are a Jerusalemite? So I arrived in Jerusalem the first long period of time in 1977, which is 45 years ago. How many times did you cross the streets of Jerusalem or between quarters of Jerusalem and you were asked to show your ID? Not very often, because being formerly a Jewish Israeli, that doesn't happen very often to Jewish Israelis. Actually, you already my not yet asked question, <laughs> and this is, assuming I stop you and I ask you, show me your ID, which many Jerusalemites, especially those who do not belong to, do not belong to the privileged ruling um, Jewish municipality or sovereignty, I ask you, David, what is written, what is your idea? My identity. Yeah. ID has two things. First is to identify, I mean, technically whom you are, and then contently whom you are. So answer these or that. So let's sure. say that before I came to Jerusalem, things were perhaps a little simpler. Not very much simpler because I came here from South Africa and not being a black African, saying that I came from South Africa already meant some identity complexity. When added to that, I would say that my parents are in fact Jews from Germany, then people would get very confused. But now when I come and sit opposite you dressed as a Catholic priest and I say that I don't often get asked to show my identity card because I'm part of the Jewish population, <laughs> then people start pulling out their hair. So, yeah, yes, you don't did. have any. So. All of them, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I have, I think, the privilege of being a little bit like Woody Allen in the film Zelig, where, if you remember... Only he, this. Sorry? With, only this with Woody Allen. Yes. <laughs> okay, good. Okay. Where he kind of blends in into very many different 
linguistic, cultural contexts, and I think that that has been one of the greatest privileges of living in a city <coughs> where so many worlds live side by side. So hmm. let's see. Both our parents departed or ran away from Germany, the dead Germany of the 30s. We call them in Hebrewite, uh, in, Hebrew, in Hebrew we call them yekes. Yes, which means nobody really knows what a yekes, but most probably those, the only ones who came to Israel and wore a jacket, a yake. So the yekes said, yeah, okay, so your parents ran away to South Africa, mine, my father, find a refuge here. Later you came here as a Jew, according to the law of return of Israel, has an Israeli idea in which you are registered as a Jew and then converted into Christianity. So you are a Judeo-Christian. I'm, yes, so. These identities that are side by side are in constant dialogue with one another, but I don't like to make a syncretism of them. So I do not call myself a Judeo-Christian, which sounds like some kind of new religion or some kind of new ethnicity. I prefer to be proud of that which is Jewish, which was never really religious. I received an education that was traditional so that we knew the traditions, I went to a Jewish Hebrew school in South Africa. My parents were proud to be Jews, but we didn't practice the religion a lot. So it was a culture, it was a it civilization. It was a culture, it was a history, it was an experience. Um, it was a kitchen, ah, it was many things. But very little was it synagogue worship or faith or creed. And so when indeed, after a long journey, I did become a Catholic, it was really my first experience of a religious community. And so, no, I'm not a Judeo-Christian which conjures up the first century. I'm a Jew who became a Christian. But I should add that in Jerusalem, um, I was adopted into a Muslim family. So for me, that is another privilege of also having experienced the world of Islam and being in a constant dialogue are among these religious traditions that find a home in Jerusalem, and Jerusalem would not be Jerusalem without all so of So maybe from a typical Jerusalemite point of view, this augmented city, I should ask you negatively, is there any kind of a Jer Jerusalemite identity you do not have? It's a good question. I would say that there are parts of what it means to be Jewish parts of what it means to be Christian and parts of what it means to be Muslim that I try very hard not to identify with. And I would say those are the parts which refuse each other. I, I am sure that within me I'm just as racist as the next guy, but I make a huge effort to kit this an ongoing dialogue. Maybe we should revisit it later because you touch here something which goes beyond the, per the boundaries of the one into actually the life of the many. Because the life of the many in this city are not necessarily a cohabitation, living together of identities, but kind of almost secluded, ghettoized each other from each other. So many Jerusalemites from this street do not know people from the other street. This church from that church, this mosque from this synagogue. So let's leave it later for the tensions of the city, which is also a tense city, but I'd like to go, I'd like to go a little bit further with that, okay? I call you my brother, my, my, my father, my brother. My father in your own community and is, it's more than a title. It's a very meaningful function in a community. You are my brother because part of you, as you said, is Jewish, and we have a kind of fraternity or brotherhood on that, sharing texts together, sentiments, not sure about food because my mom was not a great cooker, so <laughs> we don't share the same kitchen yet. Value system. Let's go for your father. Your father, at times in which all around us, the parental authority crashes. The structure of the family changes. 
the role of authority, wherever it is, be the state authority, the parents' authority, the religious authority, is not what it is to be. So what does that mean to be a father in this time of less authority? Give you the ideal, you'll have to ask others about whether I practice what I preach. It's really the question of trying to listen, trying to provide a space in which the people who I see as my children in a certain sense have someone talk to. Um, Just the other night, I invited out one of the young men that I've watched grow from a child. He is now 16 years old. He is a typical part of my community. He is a child that if you saw him, you would point at him and say, he's a Filipino, but he feels completely Israeli, completely integrated into Hebrew-speaking society. He's gone through the Jewish Hebrew-speaking Israeli school system, and of course now faced with our new government, is again reliving the nightmare of what's going to happen to him because he has no documents, no papers. Being a father to him was really trying to listen to his anxiety, listen to his fear, and to let him feel that he has someone to talk to. In fact, he is a child of a single mother, a migrant worker who came here to look after people who are disabled or sick. And he said that he can't talk to his mother because his mother lives in a total denial of anything that might come tomorrow. So it's just an example of what I think of when I think I need to act as a father in my community, create a space where people can speak what they think. And especially by the nature of our community, it's often listening to anxiety. We live in a huge majority. Um, the situation around stable is not secure. So allowing people to express themselves before me being able to listen and being a source of, I hope, some kind of comfort that someone is listening. That's for sure, Christian parts of you. I'll tell you why. We had a revered, admired foreign minister, Aubrey Ibn. He was a linguist. He was eloquent in so many languages and somebody once told him Aubrey you listen only when your mouth is open <laughs> and it's not a kind of listening you offer you offer well, Avram, the listening I said of the to you, heart I'm giving you the theory that which I strive to live okay. you'll have asked maybe I'm very much like Abba Eban in practice uh, okay, I, well <laughs> coming from your mouth I mean I leave it there but uh, <laughs> listening might be passive I heard you behind the confessional boot or whatever it is, and might be active listening. Knowing you, you're active. The active part of it is, of course, trying to keep my mouth closed. I'm a speaker. I love filling our time and space with words. So the active part is really to try and empathize, try to listen closely enough to know what the other is experiencing. And what happens to a father in a community when facing failure? A kid like this is expelled. Father suffers from a single woman, suffers whatever possible in such a society. And then you go back home alone and, wow, I failed. I didn't succeed to give the fatherhood needed. Where do you take it? So first of all, I think that in the conversation with child, there is already the admission that I am am not a powerful actor. I am not a father who can actually solve problems. Again, that is part of embracing the type of marginality that is the, the reality of our community. I want to diverge only slightly. Once I met a schoolmate of mine who heard that I had become a Christian in Israel, and he gave a sociological interpretation of what I did, saying, ah, you couldn't stand being part of the majority, you needed to be Jewish and remain with the minority. And that's being Christian here in this context. But again, it's, it's the abdication of power, because we don't have that power. So speaking to this boy, I was not saying, you know, come to me with your problems, I'm going to solve them but rather come to me and talk. Let's, let's talk this out. Let's, let's, let, let me try and listen to your uh, trouble. 
the partition lines between Judaism and Christianity were drawn centuries ago. Was it the first century? I'm not sure. The third century, fourth century, when it became the uh, Christianity became the religion of the empire, was a clear partition lines that for centuries defined the relationship between the, the two collectives, very close to each other, very apart from each other. Assuming the Torah or the, the Old Testament and the New Testament coming down, and it's about Father David who contain both testaments within his own spirituality to draw the new partition line between the two churches, the old one and the new one. Are they the same partition lines we have historically? Hmm. I mean, there is something basic in the person of Jesus. Now, the person of Jesus makes a partition line that is very clear. But what has changed radically is our understanding of how to talk about that partition line. Explain. So I think for centuries and centuries and centuries, that partition line was a battlefront where Christians were trying to impose their side of the story onto Jews on the other side of the border. And Jews were trying to defend themselves from that Christian imperialism, that violence that surged out of the Christian world and, and invaded and did violence to the Jewish world. I think what's changed in a very, very meaningful way, it's not done, it's not finished, but a discourse of contempt for Jews is being faded out and a discourse of respect and a realization, this plurality of identities has something to do with God's intentionality for the world, has, has slowly been brought in. And I think that that makes for a fundamentally different relationship. It's not everywhere, it's not done yet, but that's certainly where I am invested in trying to bring this new reality into the world. Out with the discourse of contempt, in with the discourse of respect, with all of the challenges in that with all of the challenges of remaining faithful to who I am as a Christian and yet being able to see what richness you offer me in being a Jew. And this is something new. Uh, the, the, the relationship is, is undergoing a significant change. What you tell me, you say in 1965 met or concluded its process, the second, the second uh, uh, council, of the church. The first one was a century before. And it opened up towards kinds of dialogues and conversations never before in the church within the Christian life with non-Catholic churches. As much as Protestants and Pravoslavs were invited to the council and through paragraph four with the Jews about the responsibility for the crucifixion of, of the Redeemer. So it took hundreds of years to get this resolution. It was resolved in 1965, and ever since, slowly but surely, the conversation is different. This is what you're telling me. I'm saying this and perhaps focusing on a particular new perspective, and that is that I have something to learn from the people over there. Over there is me? Over there is not only you. Ah, it's you in a very, very important way because Jews are connected to us from the beginning of who we are as Christians. Our Redeemer, as you call him, is Jewish. Notice, present tense, is Jewish, never became anything else. We believe that he's alive, sitting at the right hand of the so Father. So we believe about the Lubavitcher Rebbe. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. But it's all the others as well. In other words, the moment I'm willing to realize that you have something to teach me, then the sheikh down the road has something to teach me, the atheist who believes nothing has something to teach me, I'm changing my concept of who I am and opening myself to the possibility that I don't have it all, that absolute knowledge is not my monopoly. And I think that that makes for a very different being in the world Avram, I'm even going to suggest 
that this vision, which for me is one that really dominates my life, is the vision out of which I live also in Jerusalem. Okay, because here, as you mentioned, there are all of these worlds parallel to each other and not really interacting except in negative ways of trying to grab and uh, expel and uh, cancel out. But if you realize that all of these worlds are an integral part of my world and I'm not God, in other words, I don't have the grasp of it all, but by entering into relationship, my world is deepened, is, is enriched, enriched, I think in English, uh, then really we have a different way of being in the world. And I think that this is the challenge of Vatican II. Again, I call it a challenge because, yes, it's a vision that is proposed. We as Catholics are still working on rooting it in our community. Can I push it a little bit? Sure. That's what you're there for now. No comment. <laughs> um, when Augustinus put on table the replacement theology, he actually said, you Jews, you were blessed. Then the blessing was replaced, was given to somebody else, to the new church. And you are here as meek and humble as witnesses to the greatness of the new of the new blessing. And this was, I will say, the operating system of the relationship between Jews and Christians for so many years. Comes now Father David and says, maybe not a replacement theology, but complementary theology. Because if I go across the board, as you said, to find something that I'm missing, so maybe I, the Jew, have something to offer you to be a better, a different, a changed Christian. So, first of all, replacement theology was the overwhelming paradigm, not only in Augustine, that goes from before Augustine and the supersessionism. supersessionism. What I'm proposing is not exactly what you're saying, because even in what you're saying, there's a danger. In other words, you are not an instrument for me to be more profound. I don't want you to be some kind of tool in my life. Okay? So it's not that I cross the street, come to you, and I say, teach me something I don't have, because that's what I need in order to be a better person. But rather, I'm entering into a relationship with you in order to be challenged by the fact that I'm not God. If I believe in God, then I have to constantly remind myself that God is the you in this relationship between me and God. And it's not me. Because I think that that was the part of the, part of the problem, that we thought that we had the absolute power to define, who to, is to who? recreate the world, instead of realizing that we both, we all, and again, it's not just this cute um, me and you relationship, okay? I never forget when I speak to you that, and you will have him next time, Sari Nuseiba is in the picture. A Muslim as somebody maybe critical of religion, whatever he is. But there is this world outside that challenges me, not only enriches me. So I would, and I so won't I would, allow would, that world to challenge who I so am. So I'll leave it as complementary. Complementary is not necessarily instrumental. Might right. be a dialogist. Might be, mm -hmm. how do you say, chevruta? In a study companion. Yeah. In tandem. We're looking together. In tandem relationship. Mm -hmm. But this, as impressive as it sounds, and many of us see the transformation as fast as the church can go. And the church is, has its own rhythm. Rhythm, yeah. <laughs> yeah fast, I mean, the speed defines differently. Um, there was a kind of a replacement theology within the Jewish people. Now so many of us have contempt to the Christians. And Jerusalem is a place, in, among other places, that you wa walk the streets or watch the walls and the graffitis and uh, that you see it here. So here there is another transformation. Of course, yeah. I mean, we're not out of the cycle of contempt. Uh, when I get spat on, when I'm wearing a, a traditional Christian art, 
And it's happened not a few times or less, but happened as well when I'm pushed around or sworn at. Um, I need to remember our history. Everything needs to be put into a context. I was walking down the street, Jaffa Street, once dressed in a very traditional robe, and a very angelic-looking ultra-Orthodox Jew came towards me, and he had a big smile on his face, and he was mumbling something, okay? And he looked me straight in the eye with this angelic smile, and he was mumbling, Amalek Tistalek, Amalek Tistalek, which means uh, Amalek, get out of here. And immediately, Yankees go home. <laughs> yeah. Immediately I need to recognize, I need to remember what this kind of traditional Christian, this was not some kind of personal insult to me because I'm David, but what this kind of traditional Christian evokes in the collective memory of the Jewish people. So again, now there's, yeah, there's still a lot of violence out there and what that might let off in a traditionally dressed Christian cleric who is not coming from an empowered European culture where Christians did terrible things to Jews, but might be a local Palestinian Christian cleric dressed like that who doesn't identify with the, <coughs> the dynamic of history in which Christians persecuted Jews, but all he's known is Jewish triumphalism. So it makes this kind of life of openness uh, a challenge but I think also a very fruitful one in order to try and spread some kind of awareness that this world of others is the world that God wants, or else it wouldn't be the way that it is. Sounds Jewish. <laughs> it's Levinas, it's Buber. Levinas and Buber at a certain moment were more read by Christian theologians than they were read by Jewish theologians. Ah, it's, as, uh, as somebody <laughs> said earlier in this stage, no comment. <laughs> Is it easier today, not for a Christian, but for Christianity, if, as there is one Christianity, to talk with the state of the Jews, which calls itself the Jewish state, whatever it means, than to talk with the Jewish religion? You know, for me, easier is not a nice word. It's not a positive word. Is it more challenging? No, I think no. it's much less challenging. I think it's much less challenging. Although, as we know, for many centuries, Christians saw that it would be impossible for Jews to be empowered because they crucified Jesus and so God had rejected them and their punishment was perpetual exile. Like Cain, they had to wander the universe. I think that today it's easier. Uh, it's much less a problem, and this is the very vibrant, and again, I put that in inverted commas on the audio. You cannot see what I'm doing with my hands. It's much easier to deal with a state that has very specific demands, meaning support us diplomatically, give us money, uh, approve of our policies. Worldly, practical, yes. and very secular. Real politique, very secular rather than dealing with a religious experience, a completely other perception of the God that we both worship, the God that we both believe is the creator of the world. And again, a lot of what we discover about the Jewish people when we allow Jewish people to talk and tell us about their faith is how scarily similar their language is. Of course, our this is where it becomes the most complicated uh, and where the dialogue, I think, is also the richest. In all, in all three religions, you have the notion of il uh, Allah wa Allah, there is no God but Allah, enod milvado, nobody but him, it's, it's always him, it's never uh, her. <laughs> and in Christianity, you have the same thing of the superiority of the creator, but is our Lord, okay? Isn't it part of the deficiency or the problems of monotheism that everybody wants, every believer or every, uh, every believer's institution and establishment would like to have a monopoly over our truth and therefore have to reject all the other truth. And what you offer here is a kind of Triple theology, Jewish, Christian, all the monotheistic theology is not of rejection, but of acceptance. So actually, in your pantheon, 
we have thorns for uh, uh, for three gods. I'm not sure that it's three gods. I think it's very monotheistic, but it's the realization once again that God is God and that I'm not God. And so that, again, this is a long Christian tradition, it's a long Muslim tradition, it's a long Jewish tradition, that our discourse about God is very, uh, very fragile. Uh, when we say the word God, what, how much of God are we actually capturing with our words? Again, it was very interesting that the wake-up point, theological wake-up point, was the realization that by my saying as a Christian, God has rejected the Jewish people, I am creating an image of God that is based upon who I am because I'm not faithful. In other words, God is faithless if God rejects the Jewish people. If God has made a promise of eternal relationship with the Jewish people, that is unbreakable. The covenant, no matter what, the co what Jewish people do or do not do. The covenant. The covenant. The covenant is uh, forever. It's an eternal covenant. Unconditioned. Unconditioned. Now, what for me was a beautiful uh, expression is after Pope Francis visited the Holy Land, uh, recognizing, I think, quite prophetically that at this present moment in time, it's impossible to really address God and pray for peace in this land, because this land is so bleeding, so wounded, that what he needed to do was to invite everyone to come to Rome. And that's what he did. Uh, two weeks after he left here, he invited the Israeli president, the Palestinian president, to come to Rome, and there in the Vatican to have a prayer for peace. And for me, he put words that were very meaningful on that prayer for peace, because he said, in our human frailty, as we look around at this broken world, we are called to raise our eyes to heaven. It becomes an act of faith to raise our eyes to heaven and to gaze on that one parent. I'm now being cautious not to make him to him and to say our parent God, Pope Francis said, our common father. And to realize that by looking up at the father who is lamenting what is going on on earth by big communion uh, with God's tears we can come together with the one word uh, that God uses for us and that is brothers and for me that was very meaningful it, it was not it was not some kind of romantic theoretical statement it was really the call to walk in this city and to interact with those that live in this city as though we are one family. By the way, I do not want to exclude, I do not want to make this into a cozy club of monotheists, okay? I hope that I would be open. I know nothing about the religions of Asia or the traditional religions of Africa, but I don't want this to be perceived as some kind of cozy club where the three of us can get together and go and make crusades on the rest of the non-Christian like Muslim Jewish to world. <laughs> like like in the good old days, yes. <laughs> Before we move back to Jerusalem, the concrete place, ask for your opinion. In the monotheistic realm, there's a relationship between church and state or Knesset and Beta Knesset. The Christian one based on Matthew, Matthew, Mati. I presume what you're going to refer to is also in Mark. In, yeah. But how do you say Matthew, right? Matthew. Matthew yes. chapter uh, 22. And this is gives God, give God what's God and give Caesar, render Caesar what's Caesar. And this is a cornerstone in the latest structure of a theological acceptance of the separation of, between church and state of the authorities. At the Muslim world, and, and this is coming, among other things, because of the nature of the, of, of, of the Redeemer, of Jesus. He was a triple opposition to the rabbinical establishment, to the Herodian uh, uh, collaborators, and to the Roman em emperor. So an opposition like this must understand differently the structure of power. So it was not strange for him, this separation. Muhammad, in his personality, unified the politics and the religion. He was a prophet, but he was 
a leader of, a polit of political entities and military and military crusades. So the unification of church and state or mosque and religion, the Sharia and the state and the Muslim world is very, very close. Now Israel, our parents used to say in Germany, Altnoi, okay, old new place. What is our model closer to the Christian one or to the Muslim one. So I'm going to challenge you, Avram, because I don't agree with your interpretation of render unto Caesar what is Caesar's and unto God what is God's, because I think that we need to understand that text out of the mouth of Jesus and not out of scholastic theology in the Middle Ages. Which used it. Which used it. Yeah. And I think wrongly. Then I'm going to say something which could be very badly interpreted. I think that Jesus is not, is not proposing two realms. I think he's proposing a choice between two realms. In other words, you either live in the kingdom that is God's or you live in the kingdom that is Caesar's. This is a choice, a foundational choice for you. That everyone has to everyone take. Everyone has to make. And by the way, I think that this is foundational to our scriptures. You choose between being under the rule of Pharaoh or under the rule of God. And by the way, Israel, and this will come to the state of Israel later, as Buba would, would write, okay, in Israel, the, the choice is exact that as well. When the people come into the land and want to have a king of flesh and blood, they mm. are making a choice for the realm of Pharaoh because the king of flesh and blood will inevitably become a Pharaoh, as Solomon did, and as many of his successors did. And I think that this is what Jesus is referring to. By the way, when Muhammad takes up the challenge of founding a city based upon the word of God, I don't think it's as opposite as might be understood in a type of polemical relationship between Christians and Muslims, where Christians say, oh, we're very pure. We have nothing to do with politics. And Muslims say, politics? must be inspired by God, or else it's not prophetic politics. So I, in a certain sense, tend to be more Muslim than many Western Christians who hold on to this principle of separation between church and state. In other words, I think that the church has a lot to say to the state about the responsibilities of the state. These are not two separate realms. As a stubborn Israeli, I'll come back to it, okay? okay. But before that, as a challenged brother of you, okay? Mm -hmm. you, are you actually telling me that if I decide to live Jewish life as defined by history and culture and faith, I cannot have a state? No, I don't think that that's what I'm saying, okay? I think that the problem with the state of Israel is a different kind of replacement theology, and that is the basic challenge is the place where Jews feel they are called to build a state at the very most essential level to be shared. And this we do and not know how opens, to relinquish. This opens one's up, one up to a dialogue with another. But is and it it's not the European other, because I think that when we came here, and when I say now we, I mean Jews, when we came here, we treated the other that we found in the same categories as the other we had left behind in Europe. The burden of the white men and the locals do not really exist, or at least less. Well, that was the colonial approach, but I'm thinking of much more sinister language in which the Arabs slowly became uh, the, the, the oppressive Cossack Nazi. The Amalek. Uh, the Amalek. I heard between your lines that maybe there is a built-in tension between historic Judaism and contemporary Israeli politics. There is a tension there. Yes. yes. So let's go back to the stubbornness, okay? Yes. Whether the Western model of separation between church and state comes from the wrong interpretation of the sages, or is it just a de facto reality, we cannot deny that at the streets of the West, at least the, Democra the liberal democratic West, most places 
celebrate the separation of powers. Yes, we have a cross on our flag, and yes, we, the, the bells are ringing on Sunday, and yes, we do this and that, and you cannot, you cannot have a dollar in your, in your pocket without in God we trust. I mean, I like to see the dollar in the, in the pocket of God. Does he trust us? But this is a different, uh, <laughs> a different thing, okay? Nonetheless, as saturated as the West is with theology and tradition and rights and actual, the politics is clear, very secular, very profane. And I think that is profoundly problematic. I think that the exile of religion from the political life of states has given us models in the 20th century that are absolutely terrifying. It's not democracy. Don't you now play the purist because religion killed as many people as technological modernity did? Absolutely. I have, I have no, no problem looking at that, critiquing it, lamenting it, asking pardon for that. But I think that the state that does not hear the prophetic voice that emerges from the religious community is a state that is terrifying. Okay, so again, I am not... Because what happened in that kind of liberal adoption, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's and render unto God what is God's, and now we're talking about the development that after the French Revolution, is religion is no longer relevant to politics or to the public sphere, but to the private and the communal. It's, a, it's absolutely privatized, okay? Yeah. <clears throat> but we know from our biblical language that the prophet comes to be the conscience in front of the king. And when the prophetic figure is completely removed, again, I'm talking about a very particular form of religion. I'm not talking about the form of religion that wants to be the power but rather the religion that speaks from those margins and points a finger at the king and says, have you murdered and inherited? Which is that Elijah kind of, versus Ahab, and this is Nathan yeah. versus David. Yes. Rather than the collaborators or the, uh, the lip those who pay lip way, service to the models, king. And by the way, in both both David and Ahab, David and Ahab, took themselves to be God. They are the pharaonic version of the state. And that pharaonic version of the state is what develops if there is no prophetic margin that is pointing and that is part and parcel of the political life. It's not just a religion that says, oh, think of heaven and uh, you know the type of opiate religion uh, described by Karl Marx. It is a politically engaged religion that recognizes it has a responsibility to speak up for those that are believers in the margins, the poor? At least in Israel, which is neo-Judaism. It's a Judaism we never had before. Israel, the Jewish Israel, is a fusion, not even a merger. It's a fusion, more total, of five elements never fused before. Sovereignty, territory, power, language, and religion. And this, in this neo-Israel, religion is the collaborator of the Pharaoh rather than the, the moral opposition to David. And this Absolutely. is... I this, mean, this is, is Constantinian. Yeah. Uh, this is the Constantinian model where Eusebius, the father of the church, is the one who writes the hagiography of the emperor. Yeah. By the way, this is Nathan in his first reaction to David. When David says... I want to build a house for God. That's the second Nathan. That's the Nathan who, after he says to David, of course, do what you want. God loves you. That's the beginning of the story. Then God comes to Nathan and says, ah, No, not this time. Not, <laughs> not this, this man. Is, you know, you have sinned like David has. Uh, you've, you've, made, uh, you've made God in your own image. Let's go back to Jerusalem. A bit easier, okay? <laughs> what is Yerushalmi, Jerusalemite, for you? What does that mean to be Jerusalemite? Again, a difficult question because I think I would tend to say I am a Jerusalemite. Not for sure. Okay, and but so what yeah. does it mean when I say I am a Jerusalemite? And that is to look 
at all of those who are in Jerusalem as an integral part of the city. Okay, whether I like them or whether I don't like them, whether they like me or they don't like me, it's to walk the streets of Jerusalem and to say every person I encounter, and when I say every person, of course, maybe not to some kind of American tourist in shorts, muda shorts, but the people who are but really... But a French one with the shorts, yes. No, absolutely uh, not. Okay. <laughs> Even less. Um, <laughs> I'm talking about, for me, a decisive moment in the past, and this would have been before the first intifada, was to sit in the streets of Jerusalem, somewhere between Damascus Gate and the Western Wall, on Fridays, and to change my position, moving from place to place, and looking at people swarm in the streets, and to say, if even one of these was not here, Jerusalem would not be Jerusalem. And why do I say Friday? Because on Friday we have the Muslims swarming to the Musharif. We have the Christians walking the Via Dolorosa. We have the Jews starting to go to the Kotel, and to say, if even one of these elements was not here, this would not be the Jerusalem that I love and that I believe with all my heart, God loves. So, Jerusalem, Jerusalemism, Yerushalmi, or how do you say it? Jerusalemism is being augmented. Yeah. The sadness is that these, that these worlds pass one another by and kind of ward off the other. It's a kind of like a, uh, it's like some kind of plague. If I pass you by, but class. I don't see you. It's <laughs> I like, try my best not to see you. Like a good waiter in Vienna. But again, uh, this, this, and, and it's the plurality. I mean, it's a stereotype to say Jews, Muslims, and Christians. It's not even touching the diversity of worlds and diversity of conflicts within each one of those realms. And in okay, it's not like all Jews are happy to be with one another or all Muslims are happy to be with one another or all Christians. But really it's, it's a sensual experience more than an intellectual one because it's immersing oneself in the streets. Again, why do I say before the first intifada? Because with the first intifada came the closing off of Jerusalem. Okay, so it's... But with this... With this, herds of people actually streaming through the streets and bumping to, into each other, many times ignoring, sometimes cautious about the other for whatever reasons. In your vision, maybe not the end of the days, but towards later days, they also marry each other or you keep the walls between the various Congregations. I mean, are you proposing that to solve the problem we should all marry one another? I, I mean, Listen, I don't think that I, these people. Weren't you a father? Would have proposed you by, uh, <laughs> but um, no, no, but, that's not no, because a, that's I, be, not an I, I, be I believed in many places the partition wall between people goes not through the borders but through the sleeping room. This... Not really. Uh, if we look Bosnia and what happened there and people were intermarried or Rwanda, uh, we saw inter... Uh, yeah, that is not a, nece a, ne a necessity. Of course, in my own pastoral life, I deal quite a bit with intermarriage, people coming together, families being born that create lots of challenges, but that's the marginal experience. So what's for the, me, the long vision of the city The long vision, I'll tell a story. Okay, a story which happened not far from here. I was, uh, I teach in the Roman Catholic Seminary mm -hmm. uh, which is part of the occupied Palestinian territories, and I went to work. It was the Feast of Sukkot, and a, a closure had been imposed on the territories, meaning that Palestinians could not come into Jerusalem. And coming back from work, I coming back from teaching in the seminary, uh, the, the streets pretty empty, no one being allowed through roadblocks. When I came through the, the checkpoint, there was an old lady with a big basket of fruit on her head. And she was the only Palestinian in sight. She still had a long, long, long way to get to Jerusalem. And I did what is, of course, completely against the law. I stopped the car. I was dressed as a Roman Catholic priest. I said to her in Arabic, Grandmother, where are you going? She said, I have to go to Jerusalem to sell the fruit. I said, come. And I pretended that I play the idiot, okay, the young 
completely ignorant Christian who knows nothing about what's going on. So I said, Grandmother, why the hell have they imposed another closure? So she said, well, you know, the Jews, they have their feast. So I said, Grandmother, what's, what's, th what's this all about? What, what, what feast? This was after she had explained to me that she left the village early. This was now 11, half past 11 in the morning. She still hasn't got to the market to sell the fruit, the most frustrating day. She then said to me, you're young. You don't remember. And I said, Grandmother, what are you talking about? I don't remember. So she said, I'll tell you what this feast is about. And she went on to explain to me in detail what the Feast of Sukkot is. And of course, in the end, I said, Grandmother, how, how do you know us? And she said, you don't remember the time when we lived next to each other, and they came to us, and we went to them. And again, this was not some kind of romantic past where everything was perfect. And constructing a bridge from that past where people lived some kind of neighborliness to a future where some mm -hmm. kind of neighborliness would be restored is the type of vision that I cultivate and try to live uh, myself so that maybe something can be communicated across the walls that we've put up uh, among the communities that are integral to this city and to this land. In the eyes of many, Jerusalem is spiritual in words, but beautiful in physical. Everybody has his or her corner of Jerusalem. For one is an eating place, for the other is a wall, for the third one is a structure, a memory, whatever it is. Before we open the floor for Q&As from our audience, audience here in Tantor in Jerusalem, what is your corner in Jerusalem? And don't tell me the gym we share together, okay? <laughs> Certainly not that we share what together. Is, what, what, is, what, what is your corner? What, what is the place so that I say, this places. is Yerushalayim of Father David? There would be two places. The one would be the completely expected answer from a Roman Catholic priest, and that is to pray on Golgotha, particularly early in the morning. Golgotha within the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, for me, that is... Uh, it brings together a lot of why I think it's such a privilege to live in the city. But if it would come to beauty, life, feeling, the pulse, it would be again trying to recapture those moments in the souk between Damascus Gate and the Western Wall. Uh, walking up the and down. The old villagers with the, with the herbs are sitting and selling the freshly yeah. and, picked. And the people from Meashari yeah. passing through. And the pitot and on the, the right-hand side and the bagels. and the, yes. okay. the smells, the sounds, the, the Arabic, the Hebrew, the Armenian, the... And the Apfelstrudel, the, the Austrian hospice? No. Not really. Okay. <laughs> As well, if you want. <laughs> Father David... I'm proud that you are my brother. Thank you, brother. <laughs> the floor is ours, the mic is yours. Cameron, please. Father David, I wanted to ask um, if you could tell a little bit of your story of how you became a Catholic as a Jew and maybe explain what the Catholic Church's position is towards evangelizing the Jewish people. <laughs> he is my student, but I didn't ask him to ask the question. <laughs> okay. And seeing as he's a student, you can edit out the answer sure. and the question. <laughs> So I did not first become a Catholic. My first encounter with Christ was through the Orthodox Church when I was 15 years old. Um, new in Jerusalem, not believing in anything, and encountering a radiant disciple of Christ in the figure of an 89-year-old Russian Orthodox nun. Um, her joy was the big question. Uh, where did that come from? 
facing death, crippled and none, which I thought, oh my God, what a depressive, depressing thing. Um, and so it began there. I waited 10 years because when I said to my parents, mom, dad, I went to Jerusalem, didn't believe in anything, and now you know there is a God and he has a son called Jesus Christ, my mother burst out, how can you join them after what they did to us? And so I said, wow, <laughs> what do I say that? <laughs> so I said, I'll wait 10 years. If this is still true in 10 years, then... And I spent the next many years trying to find out which Christian could tell me what I could say to my mother. And that explains the migration from the Orthodox Church to the Catholic Church, when finally I met a Jesuit priest who is still with us. He just celebrated 87, lives in Vliam. And I said to him, Father, I have a burning question. And he said, so lucky. You have one burning question? <laughs> I have a thousand burning questions. And I said, I like that. that I think this will be my way. <laughs> um, so it was a long, long process. Okay, a long process. I would say that one of the things that most impressed me with the Catholic Church was its refusal to baptize me because of its position on evangelizing Jews. In other words, when I said to the Catholic Church, I want to be baptized, I believe, they said, ha, 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 you, you go and see in your community, God made you a Jew, God has a purpose for the Jewish people. And it took a long time of discernment before they, would actually, before they were actually convinced that perhaps I do have a vocation to be a Catholic and maybe even a priest. So I would say that today, officially, the Catholic Church has absolutely no agency that tries to convert the Jewish people en masse. Um, and I'm very pleased about that. I think that there is a perfectly good reason, and that is that we examine our history and we see that the various ways that we tried to convert the Jewish people were counter-witnesses to who we are. So, There is a church in Rome right next to the synagogue. The synagogue is a new structure. The church goes back to the Baroque period. And it is a church that was built right on the border of the Jewish ghetto into which Jews were forced once a year, to listen to Christian preaching on Easter. I think that speaks volumes to why the church has decided that this kind of active or any kind of active evangelization is not who we are supposed to be. I had to listen to my rabbi. <laughs> <laughs> and a lot of good it did you. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Anybody else? Please. Father David, in your presentation tonight, you said you shared an experience how your traditional clerical um, dress evoked a negative reaction with an Orthodox um, Jew. This question is for Abram. <laughs> is there anything we can practically do to begin to change that narrative. Again, to change the that narrative Christian, of the persecuting that, Christian. That when an Orthodox looks at a clerical priest, a priest in clerical guard, it evokes a negative response. Is there anything we can do to practically begin to change the narrative, to change his response? Or is that just going to be, are we just doomed to having that cyclic? I'll try to answer from two different points of view. One timeline. It took us 2,000 years to internalize this fear. It will require less than 2,000 years to undo it. Okay? I don't know how many years. The second <clears throat> has to do with the psyche. Father David, in, a, in his very gentle but eloquent and accurate way, hinted 
twice or thrice during the conversation about the attitude we Israelis have towards the Palestinians. Even who are Israelis by citizenship, but the Jewish majority does not have the kind of respect and equality we expected to accept us when we were a minority. There are many explanations. I'd like to offer one, just one. So many times in our life we see how an abused child becomes a violent parent. And it takes a therapy to break the pathological circle of violence from generation to generation. One of the hopes not yet fulfilled, not yet achieved by the establishment of the state of Israel is exactly this to regain or to gain a different dialogic, dialogic position with the non-Jewish environment. We're not yet there. In a very sad way, Israel by its very being, hiding behind higher walls and locking itself with barbed wires all over, preserves the old notion of the shtetl of the ghetto. But when you look at the Western Hemisphere Jews or Jewries, and you see the kind of interaction between a Jew and a non-Jew, you see something else. The non-Jew for the Jew might be a parent, a child, a mentor, a client, a partner, based on interesting egalitarian plateau. More than that, many people here mourn the marrying out of Jews. I take it many out there are mourning the marrying in of their kids with Jews, and I do not mourn, I celebrate it. I believe we live in a generation that peace is possible, the existential threats to Israel hardly exist, especially not with the immediate neighbors, those who for hundreds of years we have conflicts with, Palestinians and other Arabs, uh, states and societies around us. And my generation, is the first generation in Jewish history that has the privilege to be asked the following question here and in the West. Remember, for the first time in our history, 98% of the Jews are living out in the democratic hemisphere. We have 23,000 Jews in Iran, 3,000 Jews in Morocco. We had two Jews in Afghanistan, one passed away and the other doesn't talk to him. <laughs> and that's it. The overwhelming majority of the Jews are living in the democratic hemisphere. And the existential question of our generation is, can the Jewish people survive without an external enemy? At the West, we say yes. In Israel, we say not yet. The minute we shall internalize the potential of Judaism from within, that does not need the Amalek, the non-Jew, the Gentile, the persecutor, to find me, the conversation will open. Father David, you spoke about the loss of a prophetic voice in the case of a church and state or religion and state separation. Is there any prophetic voice that could come from an atheist point of view? Or in other words, is the prophetic voice a reminder of a value-driven system that the value could be a humanistic one? Absolutely. I mean, I think that the great prophets of the 19th century that helped us become better Christians made us more aware of what is the specificity of our vocation were people like Karl Marx, Sigmund Freud, Franz Kafka, are people who I would not put among the pious Christians who went to Mass every Sunday. So, no, absolutely. Absolutely. I do not think that the church has a monopoly on prophecy. Okay. In fact, there's a very beautiful story in the, uh, the book of Numbers 
chapter 11, where Moses has been instructed by God to bring out people to share in his prophetic spirit. And while they have received the spirit and are prophesying, somebody comes in and says, there are two people out there that are not with us and they're prophesying as well. And, And Joshua says, stop them, Moses. And Moses says, what, you're jealous? I wish all the people were prophets. So absolutely, ah, the prophetic spirit, as we know, the spirit goes where it wills. And there is doubt in my mind ah, that people of no faith can be as prophetic as people of faith. I believe you. (laughs) Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to another episode of Jerusalem Docs ND. For more information, please visit www.jerusalem.nd.edu.